You are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. And we are back talking about principles from my new book, Dangerous Love, coming out in June 2020 with Barrett Kohler. Today, I want to talk about a phenomenon that often comes up as a question of when dangerous love might not apply. And it has to do with something that is framed in various ways as reciprocity, justice, fairness, but I like to refer to it as the not enough syndrome. There's two ways that this syndrome plays out, and I want to talk about both of them today because I think they're both equally important, and both of them are really about the same phenomenon, just with different focus. The first one is that I'm not enough. In other words, what I've done in the past disqualifies me from love, disqualifies me from forgiveness, disqualifies me from being a partner or in relationship with someone else. As I look over my weaknesses, as I look over my flaws, as I question my behaviors and my attitudes in past relationships, I'm not enough. Not enough to be loved by that other person. I don't do enough. I don't offer enough value in the relationship, reconcile, or to just even be connected. I tell myself stories about my weaknesses in a way that always frame the dysfunctional parts of the relationship of as being my, my fault. And because of that, I begin to have an attitude about myself that says, dangerous love doesn't apply to me because I'm incapable of truly loving dangerously and vice versa. People are incapable of loving me when they see my weaknesses, when they see my faults, when they see the mistakes that I've made in the past, it disqualifies me from being part of this process. I've suffered from this syndrome throughout much of my life. In fact, one of the reasons that this book took five years to get to press was because of that not enough syndrome. I had finished my book really around five years ago, and I was generally happy with it, with one exception. As I read through the book, I had this question that kept coming to the back of my head over and over again. Who am I to be writing a book like this? Given my challenges, my weaknesses, and my flaws, what are people going to think about me when they read this book? What do I have to say about conflict resolution, about peace, about dangerous love, about seeing other people as people when I struggle with it so much in my own life? I wrote about this in a blog on our website called When Flawed People Write Books, that during this whole space where I was putting this book together, my life was falling apart. I had a fragile child whom I struggled to keep alive. I spent years helping people piece their lives back together, married couples, communities, while mine was, was ripping apart. Every morning I'd wake up but not want to get up. I'd look in the mirror and 
I didn't like who was looking back at me. I still don't many days. And as I was failing in every way that someone can fail, all those years of studying peace building and practicing it around the world wasn't going to save me from myself. And, and I was ashamed. I was getting a divorce. Much of it, my inability to balance my life as a husband and father, as a professor and mediator, I could help everybody else in the world, but struggled to help our family. My children were suffering. My work was suffering. I was running from my mistakes and trying to hide my weaknesses and afraid that people, if they really knew who I was, everything that I was about to say or teach about peace building would be instantly evalu- in, instantly invalidated. My faith and my ability to help others withered. Why would anyone? I ask myself daily and still sometimes ask myself, ever want help from someone as messed up as me? If you're suffering from this right now, if you're thinking about relationships that need healing, that need reconciliation in your life, and as you look in the mirror, you say, I can't say or do anything about that because of my own mistakes. You're suffering from the not enough syndrome. This feeling of not being enough can be debilitating. It can keep us from loving wholly and truly. It it sees ourselves as objects because we see ourselves as people that can't make mistakes, that are unworthy of forgiveness, that don't deserve a second or third or fourth chance, that when we evaluate our life, we are the sum of our weaknesses and mistakes. And that's all we are. Brene Brown refers to this as shame, a silent epidemic, and something that's associated with depression, grief, anxiety, addiction, and even violence. And she writes, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Shame creates feelings of fear, blame, and disconnect. And she writes about shame resilience and says that there are four elements to it. One is recognizing shame and understanding our triggers. Two, practicing critical awareness. Three, reaching out and telling our story. And speaking shame is so important as its survival depends on going undetected. But I think there's a second issue too, is that not only does shame poison us, but when we heap and deliver shame upon others, it poisons them and us. There's another way, though, that not enough can operate. And I think the two are actually interrelated. It's when we are looking at another person that we've been in conflict with, and they've made some sort of effort to try to make things better. And we say something like this, whatever they're doing, it's not enough. Or maybe we go all the way there and we say to ourselves, they, they can't do this. Me? Yeah. 
I can practice dangerous love. But them, after all the things that they've said, after all the things that they've done, not going to happen. And that lack of enough is justification to no longer see or treat others as people as long as they aren't enough. I am under no obligation to see them as people. If they can't see me, if they can't see others that I care about and love dangerously, then I'm under no obligation to love them. And even when they try, but their attempts fall short in some way or are meager or feeble, it reinforces that justification. See, even when they try, they don't really get it. And therefore, they're not enough. There's a lot of examples that I can think about this one. And some of them have been affecting my own life. And, and maybe I'll start with one there. I have some kids that are teenagers to the, in their early 20s. And there's been a growing frustration that they're not practicing the COVID-19 quarantining the same way that, that, that I would like them to. And because of that, there has been a growing, sometimes often unsaid tension in the house because they're not doing enough, not enough to protect me or protect my wife, not enough to protect vulnerable people that are in society, it's not enough. And whenever that's happened, disconnection grows between us. And even when they make that effort to wash their hands or to cover their mouths when they cough, and even though 95% of the time they are staying indoors when they don't wanna be indoors, They are not hanging out with friends when they want to be hanging out with friends. I have found myself being obsessed with the few times that they don't do it. Instead of focusing on the vast majority of the time when these teenagers, the people that are least vulnerable to this virus, are giving up their social lives at a time when it's most important to them, It's not enough. I've done a lot of marital mediation over the years, and the most common phrase that I hear from frustrated spouses is something that goes along the lines like this, I'm trying, but no matter what I do, it's not enough. It's amazing how self-defeating that becomes and how they end up ultimately falling into that other not enough trap, which is, and therefore, I'm not enough. I once worked with a couple where no matter what the wife did after she had made a a pretty serious mistake, it wasn't enough. And though she was trying her best to mend the relationship in every way that she could, that mistake was held over her head over and over again not enough and the reconciliation never came it happens not just in personal relationships it even happens in society when groups of people 
that hold different religious or political beliefs from our own, suddenly, or sometimes over a long series of time, are no longer enough. Here was a really cool, in some ways, COVID-19 hero letter that was posted on Twitter. It was from a landlord named Chris in Canada. And this is what he wrote his tenants. I'm very sorry for the late message in regards to how rent payments will work out from here on out. I would like to relieve some stress off your backs and let you all know that you do not have to worry about rent for the foreseeable future. I will give 30 days notice once we resume rent payments, but that won't be for a while. I know a lot of you have lost your jobs and are struggling. This is an unprecedented time, and I know what it's like to have no source of income. I am fortunate to still have my, my full-time job, and I want to be able to help others. Please, if you're financially struggling and are in need of anything, all caps, anything, essential, groceries, medicine, you name it, please text me back or email me, and I will grab it for you free of charge. You do not have to pay me back. Even if you are capable of paying rent, hold on to the money for your own good. We do not know what's to come. I don't want any surprises to come for you. So for your own good, I recommend you keep it unless you absolutely want to pay it. I don't really care about money right now. I care about you. Your health and safety is the number one priority. You shouldn't be struggling to find a roof for your family. Please do not hesitate to call me if you want to talk about anything. I'm here for you. Thanks, Chris. A COVID-19 hero? Now, to many, especially probably to those tenants in that apartment building, maybe you wish that your boss or landlord had done something similar. But that wasn't the reaction from everyone on Twitter when they read this letter. Some people were offended. If Chris is in such a great position, why didn't he offer this sooner? Why was he charging rent in the first place? He's probably financially wealthy. And this small little gesture, boy, I'm sure make it, it makes him feel good, but it's not enough. Given the imbalances between the rich and the poor in our country, this solitary act won't change the system. It's not enough. Man, it must be nice to be Chris with all of his privilege, with all of his money, that he can offer something like this. What about all the people that can't? What about the landlords that are bar barely struggling to get by? What about them, Chris? It's not enough. And I wonder if Chris had even imagined that this gesture that he was making towards his tenants would be perceived by many to be not enough. See, when we're struggling to see people as people, everything that they do that offends us gives us more justification to not see them as a person. And when they do something extraordinary like this, something that doesn't fit our narrative about the stories that we've told about them in the past and who they are, it threatens our justifications. So much so that our reaction isn't, wow, I need to look at Chris differently. 
It's to find some ulterior motive, some flaw in the thinking so that we can go back to seeing people like Chris as an object. I don't know Chris. Neither did most of the people that were commenting on that thread. But we know people like Chris. And depending on our views of people like that, we can project all of our frustrations about our economic situation, all of our frustrations about the imbalance between the rich and the poor in a country on this one person. And suddenly a gesture that many of us would love to have happened to us in our own lives is not enough. I'm going to tell one other story that came this week. I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and, and for a long period of time, there have been a number of members of that faith congregation who have desired to have their leaders do more around the social injustices that exist in our world, to not just talk about personal peace, but to think about social peace and what that looks like, and to use the vast resources that our faith has accumulated to help other people, to treat each other with the sort of charity that we believe was taught by Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of that, that yearning that, that, that some have felt and, and wished that we would do more, here was a talk at their semi-annual general conference where one of the leaders, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, said this, even as we speak, we are waging an all-hands-on-deck war with COVID-19, a solemn reminder that a virus 1,000 times smaller than a grain of sand can bring an entire population and global economy to their knees. We pray for those who have lost loved ones to this modern plague, as well as for those currently infected. When we have conquered it, and we will, May we be equally committed to freeing the world from the virus of hunger and freeing neighborhoods and nations from the virus of poverty. May we hope for schools where students are taught, not terrified they will be shot, and for the gift of personal dignity for every child of God, unmarred by any form of racial, ethnic, or religious prejudice. Holland's words rang beautifully in the ears of many who have prayed for more guidance, more direction in this path. But for others, it wasn't enough. Why didn't he speak out about other forms of oppression, other forms of discrimination? Why did he not speak out specifically about the cause that is deepest and dearest to my heart? Racial, ethnic, and religious prejudice aren't the only prejudice that affects our society and our faith. Why didn't he say more about that? And does this one statement really atone for or make up for all of the times that I believe members of my faith have failed in this regard? And what about the other people who, hearing his words, were actually offended, that actually rejected those words? What about them? What are you going to do about them? Don't just tell us this. Do something about them. It's not enough. Now, I'm empathetic to these causes in deep ways. Family members of mine have been affected by the intolerance and prejudices that have sometimes come from people within my own faith. I yearn for and have dedicated my life's work to 
a day like many when we can see everyone as a child of God in my faith and treat them with that dignity and respect, regardless of how they identify themselves, regardless of their background, just because they are. But I worry about the not enough syndrome. Dangerous love has to work towards our enemies, towards the people that we disagree with the most. And one of the ways it works is when they start to turn towards us, no matter how small the turn, no matter how insignificant the turn, regardless if it's a full turn in the ways that we need, want, or expect, we embrace that. We create space for it. We encourage it. And that is what invites more turning, not more shaming, not more finger wagging or scolding that it's not enough. Think about it if it's reversed and you're out there and you're looking at past mistakes and you're dipping your toe into the waters to see how other people react. Will they be forgiving? Will they create space for you? And the reaction is scorn. The reaction is ridicule. The reaction is eye rolling or it's not enough. How do you respond? I think you respond the same way that, that, that most of us would. You turn back around until you're no longer seeing them anymore. In fact, that response actually gives you more justification now to say, I'll never be enough. No matter what it is that I say or do, it won't be enough. The goalposts will just continue to move. Look, I want to make clear here that I'm not excusing your past mistakes or theirs. I'm not saying that what they did was right or should just be easily forgiven. What I am saying is, if you want peace, if you want change, shame is not going to get you there. Shame is actually going to get you exactly what Brene Brown said it would. It gets you more fear, blame, and disconnection. And while being right may feel worth it, it never really is. The founder of the Arbinger Institute, Terry Warner, wrote this. We do not make progress in our way of being by working hard to make events go our way or by using all our wit and skill to outmaneuver or overpower others to make them bend to our will. We get nowhere by forcing onto them our plan for making ourselves happy. Good things do start to happen as soon as we open ourselves to the light or truth that flows to us from others. Good things do start to happen as soon as we open ourselves to the light or truth that flows from others. When we are closed, from that light, it becomes so hard to embrace the people that we need to embrace the most. We say that we want this conflict to end. We say that we want a different society or a different culture, but we want them to turn first and we want them to turn fully. We want them to acknowledge our truths and we want justice. And then, and only then, we will turn. When they bend to our will, when they are finally making us happy, then they deserve to be seen as people. Then and only then will they deserve my love. We have to change the direction of the flow and not wait for others to change it for us. And when 
they start to change the direction of the flow in the way that we've hoped or dreamed for, that is not the time to heap on more pain or more truth. It's to encourage lovingly with eyes and arms open to turn a little more. Conflict reconciliation expert John Paul Lederach once asked, which way will the water flow that defines our relationship toward the shore of fear or that of love? When the water flows toward fear, the relationship is defined by recrimination and blame, self-justification and protection, violence and the desire for victory over other. When the water flows toward love, it is defined by openness and accountability, self-reflection and vulnerability, mutual respect, dignity, and the proactive engagement of the other. Dangerous love gets the water flowing in the only direction that will actually give us lasting solutions to the problems that beset us. It's fine to be angry, hurt, disappointed, devastated by our own actions or the actions of others. But when we use that anger, hurt, disappointment, or devastation to justify our not seeing them as people, we have a problem. A problem, ironically, that is exactly the one that they have. If their inability to see the humanity of someone because of their race or gender or political or religious beliefs or because of their actions led to emotional, physical, or structural violence, how will our inability to see their humanity because of their race or gender or political or religious beliefs or past words or actions lead to emotional, physical, or structural peace? So here's dangerous love in its most potent form, asking us to love someone who feels truly dangerous to ourselves and others. It means looking for ways that we or they are enough and using that progress to build toward more progress. It means that when our enemies show their humanity, we don't heap upon them scorn for their past failings but we embrace their turning in a way that invites them to keep turning until enough is truly enough. It means that when we show our own humanity and vulnerability, we don't heap scorn upon ourselves for our past failings, but embrace our turning in a way that continues to invite us to keep turning until enough is truly enough. If you're struggling with dangerous love toward yourself or others, it's the same. Failing to practice it towards ourselves deeply impacts the way we see and relate to others. Failing to practice it towards others deeply impacts the way we see and relate to ourselves. Martin Luther King, in the midst of all of this, preaching in African-American churches to a frustrated congregation that could rightly ask, why is it that you're asking me, the victim of structural violence, direct violence, because of race, you're asking me to love white people? To which he responded, 
In a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught up in a network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. In the midst of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, where an entire country had to wrestle with the emotional, structural, and physical violence that had been perpetrated, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who chaired many of those reconciliation sessions, wrote this in his book, There's No Future Without Forgiveness. Forgiving and being reconciled are not about pretending that things are other than they are. It's not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the pain, the degradation, the truth. It can even make things worse. It is a risky undertaking, but in the end, it is worthwhile because in the end, dealing with a real situation helps to bring real healing. But I think a lot of people stop there, but he doesn't stop there. That truth part is important, but that's not everything. Forgiveness does not mean condoning what was, has been done. Forgiveness does not mean condoning what has been done. It means taking what happened seriously and not minimizing it. We are declaring our faith in the future of a relationship and in the capacity of the wrongdoer to make a new beginning on a course that will be different from the path that caused us the wrong. We are saying here is a chance to make a new beginning It is an act of faith that the wrongdoer can change. Later, Tutu, in summing up what he learned from the Truth and Reconciliation, said this about humanity. I have come to realize the extraordinary capacity for evil that all of us have because we have now heard the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and there have been revelations of horrendous atrocities that people have committed Any and every one of us could have perpetrated those atrocities. The people who were perpetrators of the most gruesome things didn't have horns, didn't have tails. They were ordinary human beings like you and me. That's the one thing. Devastating. But the other, more exhilarating than anything that I have ever experienced and something I hadn't expected to discover, that we have an extraordinary capacity for good people who suffered untold misery, people who should have been riddled with bitterness, resentment, and anger, come to the commission and and exhibit an extraordinary magnanimity and nobility of spirit in their willingness to forgive and to say, ha, human beings are actually fundamentally good. Human beings are fundamentally good. The aberration, in fact, is the evil one. For God created us ultimately for God, for goodness, for laughter, for joy, for compassion, for caring. Lema Gabawi, Nobel Peace Prize winner, who led a series of protests in Liberia to end a gruesome civil war, whose victims primarily were women and children, wrote this in her amazing, amazing book, Mighty Be Our Powers. The person who hurt you, who raped you, or killed your family is also here. 
if you are still angry at that person, if you haven't been able to forgive, you are chained to him. Everyone could feel the emotional truth of that. When someone offends you and you haven't let go, every time you see him, you grow breathless or your heart skips a beat. If the trauma was really severe, you dream of revenge. Above you is the mountain of peace and prosperity where we all want to go. But when you try to climb that hill, the person you haven't forgiven weighs you down. It's a personal choice whether or not to let go. No one can tell you how long to mourn a death or rage over a rape, but you can't move forward until you break that chain. I opened the book Dangerous Love, chapter one, with this quote from Donna Hicks, who has written two incredible books about dignity and the role that they play in peace building and conflict resolution. And she writes, the glue that holds all our relationships together is the mutual recognition of the desire to be seen, heard, listened to, and treated fairly, to be recognized, understood, and to feel safe in the world. When our identity is accepted and we feel included, we are granted a sense of freedom and independence and a life filled with hope and possibility. From an inward mindset way, we can read that to say, when others recognize us, when others accept our identity, when others allow us to feel included, we gain a sense of freedom and independence and a life filled with hope and possibility. Fair enough. But from an outward mindset, it also means when we accept other people's identities and help them feel included, when we recognize them and understand them and give them a safe space in the world, we grant to them a sense of freedom and independence and a life filled with hope and possibility. We are enough. Your enemy is enough. Despite their mistakes, their weaknesses, their offensive beliefs, their attitudes, they are enough because they are people. You are enough. Despite your weaknesses, despite your faults, despite your past mistakes, you are enough because you are a person. It has to be. The only way that we get to this sort of personal peace and structural peace and realized lived peace on the ground that we hope for is by deeply embedding in our bones that concept that people around us, regardless the color of their skin, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their race, their socioeconomic status, their gender, their sexual orientation, are people to me. They are enough. And you are enough. This has been the Dangerous Love Podcast. Aloha. Aloha.